You know, there's so many different ways to engage in personal growth. Certainly the process, the Hoffman process is one of those. But what about if you could use your partnership as a path towards wellness, to use what's happening in your partnership to help you grow? That's really what Linda and Charlie Bloom do, and it's what they talk about in this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation as they talk about how they help couples step into what's happening between them for the sake of their own personal growth. I loved it, and I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody, welcome to the program. And on today's episode, we have Linda Bloom and Charlie Bloom. They've been married since 1972, and they've been experts in the field of relationships since 1975. They're both therapists, seminar leaders, counselors. Um, They work with individuals, couples, and groups. They've led seminars at universities, at conferences, all around the country, international as well. And they've written a number of books. Their best-selling book, 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last, as well as other books. They've also been featured on podcasts and media, TV programs as co-authors, and co-presenters in the field of marriage work. Their company is called Bloomwork. And welcome to the program. Great to have you guys. Well, thank you, Drew. I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for inviting us. So will you guys share a little bit about how you got into this field? Why couples work and and for so long? How did you get into this field of working with couples? Well, originally, we were both attracted to becoming psychotherapists because we came from difficult families, and we were trying to understand what a functional family looked like and felt like so that we could create one for our kids. And we started to specialize in treating couples when we went through a difficult period ourselves and really had to pay very close attention to what differentiated the couples who were struggling or okay from the ones that had great relationships. And we learned so much in the lab of our own partnership that I felt like I wanted to pass it forward. We'd gotten such good help from other people who had uh, wisdom to impart to us. And then I wanted to make that available to the couples that came our way. I love that. The lab that was our partnership. And still is. <laughs> it's still this laboratory of learning your marriage is, huh? Yes, it is. What, what about you, Charlie? 
Yeah, that was um, that was one of the prime motivators, I think, in us specializing in this field. I mean, both Linda and I had been psychotherapists, but we hadn't been specializing in doing couples work and relationship work. But what we discovered was that we have, just to use that metaphor of a lab, that we had with us or within us the incredible opportunity to experiment and learn from our relationship, to learn what the consequences were to responding to each other in different ways. Just basically looking at how we can learn what things are that we need to understand so that we can help couples better. So the, the motivation was kind of twofold. It was to enhance our personal relationship. But we noticed that in the process of doing that, we we also were learning a lot about helping other people. You know, I think that it's a lot of us have experienced the pleasure that we get from sharing something valuable that we have learned with other people who take that, who accept that. And so we were most fortunate that we got to do, it was a twofer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea of a twofer where you're learning in your own partnership and then sharing that wisdom and then learning again. I imagine it's a kind of back and forth over and over again throughout your career and throughout your marriage. Yes, it reinforces it when you pass it on. It deepens it. It anchors it in your being. And so we've had, we've been blessed with many opportunities to work with couples and to do intensives, you know, a day long with a couple or two days and to teach workshops. And also in our books, we have to distill down to essence to be able to make it reader friendly. So we really have to know it in the marrow of our bones to be able to pass it on in a way that other people can grasp it. And when you say we have to know it deeply in the marrow of our bones, I imagine that's not something where you have a one-time experience and you get it. Learning must take over and over again, falling down, tripping up, learning the lesson, to get it deeply, I imagine it takes a couple runs at the at the concept, the ideas, the learnings. Sometimes even more than two. Um, <laughs> sometimes three. Two hundred. <laughs> yeah, you know, Drew. One of the things that we're most frequently encountering in our work with couples is the need to reassure them that there's not something wrong with them personally or as a couple because they haven't yet totally embodied the teachings that they're learning. You know, we, we tend to think very often that when once I understand something, then that should automatically transfer to a transformation of my behavior. And the reality is, is that we're dealing with, all of us are dealing with embedded behavioral and relational patterns that have been reinforced literally for decades with thousands and thousands of repetitions. So we're not going to be able to neutralize those neural pathways simply by understanding something intellectually. It's going to require a number of repeated takes on that kind of a, you know, to to really deal with that, to make those changes and to integrate them. 
and it takes more time than we think it should. However, even at those times when we feel helpless and hopeless and very discouraged, that possibility is still there. So one of the things that we try to leave people with when we work with them is the understanding that what they had believed sometimes in the past had was not possible, that it is possible. So we want to leave them not only with some tools, but with some hopeful optimism about their capacity to make these changes. And that hopeful optimism comes from realizing that this is normal. This is hard work. There's, as you said, thousands of repetitions and that it takes time to change those neural pathways. But the other thing you said was that maybe this diagnosis of your marriage being faulty or uh, worthy of divorce isn't accurate. That if you just worked with one another, that you could, I mean, part of what you're saying is this stuff is normal. Absolutely. In fact, there's quite a bit of really hard data research about couples being followed for years, decades, and the same differences that they have at the beginning of their relationship after a few decades, they're still there. The irreconcilable differences. And John Gottman is a researcher that we both really admire. He has shown that the couples who are doing well are not necessarily the ones who are more homogenized, you know, where they have alignment about topics and styles of being in the world or even values. The couples who are doing well are the ones who make a big space for their differences to be there without condemning them for it, for not condemning themselves for it, for not making the other person wrong, for respecting the differences. And this is the part that I love the most, learning from each other's signature strengths. So they do not have to be divisive. And the happiest couples have plenty of differences. They just know how to be with them and not to uh, make, make too huge a deal out of it. It doesn't have to be separating. It doesn't have to lead to divorce or resignation that we're just going to have to stay in this relationship be, because of whatever reasons that that can be. Uh, a vitalizing aspect of their partnership. And you, you've shared about the medium is the message. Can you share what you mean by that? And what we mean by that, the medium is the message, that we need to live and embody what it is that we're trying to convey to the students so it's not hollow and hypocritical. And so when we're offering to the students that their relationship is going to deepen if they're vulnerable, we risk telling gory stories about our relationship when we were making all kinds of mistakes. And that seems to be inspiring to people that they could admit to when they've made unskillful choices. And I talk about how I've been bitchy and uh, in the past when I didn't get things that I wanted and I pouted. And, and, you know, we have some humor in the classes about the dark places we've been when we get backed up. But we also model for the students to give your heart 
to put the differences and any resentments that you have periodically aside and put them on the shelf and go straight for the love. And we model that for them too, that you don't have to have it all together to give your heart. And just a thought away from the things that upset you and that are unfinished business, there's the appreciation and gratitude that you've got somebody to hang in there with who wants to assist you to become your greatest self, who wants to assist you to uh, heal from all of your family of origin wounds, who wants to assist you in your process of learning the skills and developing the qualities that are required to have working relationships. And one of the things that's revolutionary thought for a lot of the people that we work with is that they need to be checking in with each other on a regular basis and to keep the accounts cleaned up, do you know, to not let the incompletions mount up. If things are bothering them, not to try to just hide them, but to lean into the challenge of bringing them up in a respectful way, not in a critical and judgmental way, and to be deliberate about the ways in which they apologize if they've done something that harmed the other person, and to be deliberate about offering forgiveness at the first possible that they, moment that they can to be able to let go. And bringing up the tough issues and keeping keeping things cleaned up in the relationship is a really important routine to get in. And so even when you do massive amount of work in the Hoffman process, you still, although you've lightened up a ton, you still are going to have things that come up that upset you. And even Bob Hoffman, you know, back when I worked with him years ago, said, as powerful as the process is, it doesn't handle everything. And you still need to stay abreast of the issues as they come up and get your relationship skills to the highest level that you possibly can so that your relationship can really up-level. And that is both normal. It's, it's not as if something's wrong. That kind of effort is a natural, normal function of every marriage, right? It, it's not an indicator that we should get divorced or something. Every committed partnership. Charlie and I wrote a book called Secrets of Great Marriages, and we interviewed the happiest couples that we could find. And nobody lucked into a great marriage. They all earned their way in. So just because you have difficulties in a relationship doesn't mean anything's wrong with you, doesn't mean anything's wrong with them, doesn't mean that the relationship isn't meant to be. It's generally speaking an indicator that your skill level needs to get up, get up higher. And there's some, you know, things from the past that may be bogging you down. And it's true across the board. Now that some of that stuff has been normalized in culture, there's more and more people out there doing this work, speaking about it. Do you find that people come in with less stigma? Are they more ready to do the work? Do they access the work sooner rather than too late? I believe that's true. Not only that, but one of the things that we've noticed over, I would say, within the last few years, is that we are getting more men than women, in our, both in our practices and in our workshops. Wow. And when you think about it, it's not surprising, because um, what, what's happened is culturally there's, there's been a shift. 
And whereas before the women's movement, there was a much higher level of financial and material dependency that women had on men, and they felt that they had to put themselves in a subordinate dependent role in order to have the kind of material security that they needed. And there's been a huge shift um, in recent years. And what's happened is a lot of the women who previously didn't feel that they could afford to take a stand for their own well-being in their relationship, who had a sense of more self-sufficiency and independence, you know, they said, hey, you know, I don't have to take this. You know, I don't have to just accommodate the demands of, of, entitled, of an entitled husband. I'm not saying that this is how it is for all couples, but there has been a shift in this direction. And the result has been that there's been um, a lot of men who had been able to kind of pull it off <laughs> in the past. They're not being able to get away with it. And, you know, they're waking up literally one day to uh, a wife who says, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And Charlie, when that happens, does that mean it's really done? Or is that an, a beginning, an opportunity? What do you see in your work when people say, I'm done? Well, sometimes they think she's just saying it. And sometimes that's true. She doesn't really mean it. She doesn't mean I'm done with a capital D. She means I'm done living this way. I can't continue this way. But sometimes they mean it literally, as in, no matter what you do or say, we're done as a couple. The marriage is over. And sometimes at that point, you know, the other person will say, you know, slow down. I know that, that you're upset, but I understand what you're saying, and I really want to make things better. Uh, please give me another chance. And the way that conversation goes is, you know, she'll say, um, <laughs> another chance? Do you know how many chances I've given you? Hundreds of them. What makes you think that I can trust you telling me one more time that, no, this time you mean it? So, you know, the answer, Drew, I think is sometimes it's the former and sometimes it's the latter. Sometimes it's she really is done. And sometimes it's she's just experiencing a profound frustration and is still open to the possibility that perhaps, possibly, it might work out. So I, I know this is a general question, but, but I do have to ask, why is it that so many relationships fail? What, what happens that causes people to say, I'm done at what seems like such a high rate? That's a profound question, and I have a few different things that I think are at play. One is people have wild, romantic fantasies and illusions about how their marriages and their committed partnerships are going to redeem them from all their prior suffering and they expect so much of the other person, which doesn't point to all the work that we each have to do as an individual to grow up, mature, heal our past wounds, grow the strengths, get the 
skills that allow us to be in a wonderful relationship. So there's a tremendous amount riding on it without the how-tos of being able to reach those lofty goals. I always tell people, don't compromise your goals. Hold a really high standard. Do you know, have extraordinary expectations. As long as you've got intention to match, don't, don't expect the other person to bring it to you on a tray. The other thing that I think trips people up so much is that they're pain tolerant. And sometimes they come into their adult relationships because they've known how to stand it in their families of origin, all the ways in which they weren't seen and heard and respected, that they were controlled or they were left alone or whatever it was. And their expectations are too low of what they're wanting. But in the meanwhile, their needs aren't getting met and their feelings aren't really being accepted by the other person and the closeness that they may want is not there and it's cumulative over time and eventually it breaks down because they haven't been negotiating for their needs and they've just been tolerating, 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 tolerating until they can't stand it anymore. And then there's one last big component that a lot of people don't trust couples counseling. It's the most complained about form of therapy. And the research about it is a lot of people say it didn't really help or it helped for a little while and then it faded away. And some people report it really didn't help at all. In fact, I think it made things worse. And I think some of these couples counselors are letting people blame each other and judge each other way too much and not get vulnerable and learn how to speak their truth without the blame and judgment. The majority of couples who divorce don't even go to one marriage counseling session. Oh, my. And I find that heartbreaking. And most of the people who are separating and divorcing, the separation and divorce is precipitated by the women in the relationship. So that goes both for the married couples and the couples who may not be legally married, but have been in a committed partnership. Because the men are bringing up the rear about doing the heavy lifting, about learning what needs to happen in the relationship for it to be a healthy, wholesome, thriving one. Linda and Charlie, at some point in the the week, students look around after having done a lot of deep, introspective work in silence. And I see it happen each time I facilitate a process where they look around and they say, oh my gosh, you too? Like there's another person who feels this way? I imagine as you talk about the work you do in the workshops and bringing couples together, that part of the simple value is just seeing that there are other couples out there who struggle with the same thing. Is that what you find? I would say that it's not only part of the value, I'd say it's the biggest part of the value because there's so much shame around having a troubled or broken marriage or relationship that most people are loath to share that information with anybody. And so we all go around pretending that things are fine when they're not. And that promotes the misconcepted belief that 
everybody else out there is doing fine. And I'm, I'm in a marriage that's a basket case. And, but everybody else seems to be fine. And they're looking at you thinking the same thing. So we have a very distorted perspective because of the shame that is so prevalent about feeling like I have failed. And if I'm divorced, and then I'm in another relationship, and like many other divorced people, I haven't learned what I have needed to learn from the first situation, then, you know, I have even more shame. I'm going to be a two-time loser. And so, yeah, there is this misconception, this belief that everybody out there is really doing fine except for me. When you're in a group and people feel safe enough to share their feelings and their concerns and they're brave enough and trusting enough and honest enough and desperate enough because it's the desperation that causes them to take the risks, then they have a whole different perspective. And, and that takeaway from that group experience, I think, is as powerful as any other information that they learn during that weekend. That is saying something, that it's the desperation that causes them to take the risks. Desperation creates the motivation. So you have to be willing. When they talk about bottoming out, you know, hitting your bottom, that is the point at which you are so desperate that you'll finally do something that you had never thought you would do. Not such a bad place to be. No, it's a necessary place to be. The more effective you are at resisting and avoiding dropping down to that place, the less likely you're going to be to learn what you need to learn. The more effective you are at resisting it, I imagine people get quite effective at resisting it. We become experts. In avoidance, in distraction, in numbing. Denial, avoidance, and distraction. We're pros. And the process helps us to become aware of where we have put our attention and made our efforts. And it's not into healing. It's not into recovery. It's into avoidance and denial. It's tragic. It is yeah. tragic. It's horribly tragic. But the good news is that it's possible to transform a tragedy into something that's redemptive, that you can redeem a broken relationship. You can heal a broken heart. I also know that shame exists in the void, in the silence. And so I, I'm thinking about what is it that we talk about when we raise kids regarding relationships. And my parents, really the only thing, one of the only things they said was, oh, there's plenty of time. Don't get married too soon. And I know you guys have kids. As people who do this work for decades, it's your lifetime commitment, your legacy. What do you in turn uh, say to your children about partnership, about relationship? I told the kids that I believe in the trying 20s. The trying 20s, you're supposed to be trying all kinds of things. You try on different majors in college. When you get out of college, you try on different career paths. And in relationship, you should try 
dating lots of different kinds of people because you're growing into your own maturity and your own adulthood and you're interfacing with other partners who are growing into their maturity and adulthood. And by the time you're getting in your later 20s, getting close to 30, you know more about who you are and where you're going in life and who is likely to be a good candidate that would match you in your values, your interests, your life goals, and you're going in the same general direction, you're more likely to have a lifetime partnership with them. I tell this to my clients too, that not only do you mature and do your own work until you're pretty clear about who you are and where you're going, but be doing lab work all the time. Anybody that you're dating, anybody that you're in relationship with, you're using that as an opportunity to get your skills honed about how to have a great relationship. And I really think it's important for people not to make commitments to lifetime partnership if they haven't gone through some kind of difficulty together. If you partner up when you've been in infatuation stage, you're too full of myths and romantic notions. We wrote a book about that too called Happily Ever After and 39 Other Myths About Love. And it's good to leave the infatuation stage and get to the part of commitment where you're not in illusion about who the other person is. Because in that first year, sometimes even longer, we don't even know really exactly who we're with. And we fill in the blanks with Prince Charming and Princess Charming, you know, fantasy material. If you go through a difficult challenge, you see whether the person's got staying power to hang in there. You see whether they're compassionate, whether they're patient, whether they're tolerant, whether they're accepting, whether they can meet the difficulty they're going through with loving kindness and have the kind of staying power that good long-term relationships require. So I think it's, it's important to see yourself in the early years of dating as utilizing those partners as lab partners to become expert in what relationships require. That is so good. The trying 20s. As, as someone with two teenagers, I now have a North Star to point them towards. I love it. Uh, you guys, I am so grateful for this conversation. I just have a question before we go. As you look back to your process, what do you remember about it? Is there a moment in time that each of you remembers? You know, it's hard for me to, to pick out any one specific moment, but I think that the experience that I remember having in the process that I feel was really transformative for me. It came from the perfection of the way the whole process is designed, and that was the awareness, the recognition that. Ultimately, I am responsible for my life, that I am not responsible for the things that have happened to me, which relieves me of an awful lot of the shame and, and remorse and guilt that I had been carrying. But I am responsible for now what? How do I choose to deal with this? Do I choose to be honest with myself about what happened and to 
relate to that without shame or guilt or, or blame, but to take total responsibility for now I have the ability to respond to this situation in a way that I decide is the correct way. I have that authority. I have that responsibility. And, and that transformed my whole sense of personal responsibility from a, a burden to an incredible opportunity that doesn't weigh heavily on me, but it, it's a gift. That felt literally enlightening. I felt lighter. I felt a sense of actually gratitude and enthusiasm rather than a burden. I, I can't tell you the point at which that kicked in, but that's something that I have been experiencing for the 30 years since I did the process. Beautiful. Linda? For me, the most pivotal moment in the process, and there were many that were just strong impact on me, but grieving my parents, grieving the image of parents charming who I didn't get, the perfect parents, the perfect parents who would accept me and love me as is and wouldn't try to make me into the creation of who they wanted me to be. And I cried and sobbed and cried and sobbed. And I was up most of the night uh, crying some more and journaling and journaling and crying. But it was just a cathartic experience for me, accepting that they did the best that they could. They gave me everything that they felt was the best to give me, to launch me into my life. And it felt I felt gratitude for what they did give me, but I was able to let go of the grudges and the resentment for all the things that they had done and not done and said and not said that I had been carrying that I didn't even know that I had been carrying. And for me, that letting go, I've always been good at holding on. I'm strong in commitment. Letting go has been the edge for me to play. But that was a big cleansing for me, a purification and a letting go. And I feel that it freed up. And, it, you know, it still is operational in my life now. I got freed up of the heaviness and it made room for all kinds of new things to come in my life. And when I wrapped up the process, I stood up and declared in front of my whole group and Bob Hoffman was there that I was going to become a Hoffman teacher because I was so grateful to the process for the, the big leap forward in consciousness that I had taken. The next week I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so I, spirit had other plans for me. So I went on another path, but I was absolutely committed to, you know, promoting this, this work in the world by being a Hoffman teacher myself. I know now that it wasn't my path and nothing could have stopped me short of something big and traumatic, like my life-threatening diagnosis. But what I'm really meant to do is to assist couples in their romantic partnerships to be able to unload the limiting beliefs that they have and to acquire the, the skill set and the qualities to be able to have great relationships. And I feel that those things that I learned in the process really inform my work and have ever since I did it and allow me to be as effective as I am 
as a teacher, blogger, author, and a counselor. And I feel really blessed that I'm able to do it with Charlie and that we have the same frame of reference that we use and that we can do it together because that just enhances the fun for me. I know you do a lot of media and a lot of interviews, but what's it like to look back and remember your processes and talk about them? Feels good. I don't do it very often, but as I'm doing it with you today, it reawakens so many of the insights that I got from that reminds me of how far I've come. And um, it's very gratifying. Yeah. This is, this is nice to have a little walk down memory lane. It's bringing back in very vivid color, you know, in vivid detail, some of the highlights from the process. It was decades ago, but it's still very alive in our work. It's very alive in my life. And it's, it's nice to revisit in a detailed form. And if people want to access some of your work, you talked about the ebooks earlier before we push record. How can listeners find more about the work you do? If they can eat, remember Linda Bloom or remember Charlie Bloom or remember Bloom Work, and they Google that, it'll take them right to our website, which is bloomwork.com. Singular, not bloomworks.com. That will take you to a flower nursery. It's Bloom Work. And if they give the email address, they will get our three free ebooks. One of them is about sexuality. One of them is about conflict. And the third one is the 10 most important things we've learned since we got married. And once they're at our website, they have a link that will take them to Psychology Today. And we have several hundred blogs there. It will take them to our YouTube channel, Linda and Charlie Bloom YouTube. And there's more than a hundred YouTubes that they can, all this for free. And they can see where we're going to teach. We're going to be teaching in the fall at Esalen Institute. And there's nothing quite as powerful as being with a nut number of other students in the room lining up your commitments together and that really is a way to buy in bulk and really have you know have that gift that keeps on giving in your life in the form of enriching your life through great relationships buying in bulk that's fantastic Uh, one final question if you guys could each share one thing you wish couples would know one thing that maybe all couples could take away uh, that would help their marriage. What, what would it be? You know, the thing that came to my mind as soon as you asked that is um, a term that I think probably many of your listeners are going to be familiar with, but some maybe not. And that is enlightened self-interest. Enlightened self-interest refers to the phenomenon that we all have dual concerns and commitments in our life. One is our own well-being that we want to fulfill and maintain and strengthen. But also, we also want relationships to be successful. And they require two different focal points. One is to look at what are my needs here. The other one is to look at what is my relationships needs, what is my partner's need, and to somehow be able to integrate those two concerns because often it feels like they're at odds with each other. 
And enlightened self-interest basically means that when you really commit yourself to the relationship, when that becomes a high priority in your life, and you are doing it for the sake of the relationship, you will also benefit from that. So enlightened self-interest really means that you're not having to choose between the two. It means that when you take care of yourself, your relationship will thrive. When you take care of your relationship, your own well-being will be enhanced. And when people realize that, they don't feel like the relationship is taking all this effort and work, and they don't feel drained by it. They feel like, oh, everything I'm putting into this is going to come back to me. And that's what we mean by the medium is the message, that when you really get that, then you experience that, and that becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah, and my bottom line is do your own work. And I know that some people have uh, a loss of energy when they think about the word work, but I love my work, and it's uplifting for me, so I only mean it in the most positive sense of the word. And what I mean by do your own work is keep your attention on yourself, practice mindfulness, notice your thoughts in your mind, your emotions in your heart, your sensations in your body, your reactivity, learn to know your sore spots, what triggers you from your other partner. And I use partner and relationship more than marriage, since marriage is going out of vogue these days, and a lot of people are choosing not to be married, but they are in a committed partnership and they are cohabitating. So this goes for people who aren't married, but anybody who wants to have a working partnership, that if they can keep their attention on themselves and they can be aware of their own strengths and their own weak suits, and they commit themselves to strengthening the parts that are weak and healing the parts that are sore, they will bring a more evolved self to their partnership. And that is magic elixir to be able to grow the relationship into co-creative partnership that thrives. Magic elixir. I love that. I'm grateful for this conversation and I feel both uh, heart full and uh, committed, recommitted to being a better husband as I as I listen to this and am grateful for the time. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Charlie. It's delightful to be a part of the interview with you today. Yeah, thank you, Drew. And um, thanks for your great questions. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Rassi Rossi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.